Russia's early modern era. <clears throat> We're going to chat today about Ivan the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great. In case it's not too obvious, I would not suggest getting caught up on those great or terrible titles because you'll find out each were great and terrible in their own unique ways. So stay tuned to find out exactly what I mean. So obviously this episode is going to be chronological in nature. So we'll start off with Ivan the Third, or also known as Ivan the Great. If you recall, when we last left off with Russia, we had learned about it being ruled by the Golden Horde of the Mongol Empire. And another thing you might remember is that Moscow at that time was of central importance to the Mongols because it was where the Grand Duke was located. And the Grand Duke had mattered to the Mongols because he was the one who was responsible for collecting Russian tribute that would eventually be paid to Mongol leadership. Now, one prince of Muscovy, which is Moscow and its kind of greater area, was Ivan the Great, also known as Ivan III. He's able to use his economic and military resources to build up a strong enough force that was able to free much of Russia from Mongol rule. By 1462. Now, rulers such as Ivan had had a long history of taking part of that tribute that would go to the Mongols for themselves and using that accumulated wealth to build up their resources and establish their own base of power. And if you remember our discussion on the Mongols, they had really started to weaken by the 14th century. So by the time we hit the 1400s and into the 15th century, obviously, Mongol rule is no longer really what it once was. So Ivan the Great, pulling his resources from Greater Muscovy, is able to drive the Mongols out. Now, the legacy left by the Mongols on Russia would be defined by cultural and economic stagnation. What Russia is going to be left with is a a pretty large state of underdevelopment. Uh, They have an agriculturally based economy. They have a very low literacy rate in comparison to a lot of their European neighbors, And so as the 16th century emerged, Russia has a lot of catching up to do in order to replicate the emerging tremendous developments that are taking place in Western Europe, as we've recently learned about. And the one thing that Russia is going to set out to do first in order to strengthen its ties to the Christian world is to establish itself as the self-proclaimed, quote unquote, Third Rome. The Byzantine Empire, if you recall, had officially collapsed with the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople back in 1453. And Ivan the Great had married into Byzantine royalty, and therefore he's the most powerful remaining leader to take control of the Orthodox Church. So he is going to declare Moscow to be the center of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So that's about what I have to say about Ivan the Great or the Third. Now that takes us to Ivan the Fourth or Ivan the Terrible or Ivan the Awesome, because there's a word that's used in Russian, which is called Grozny, which kind of has multiple terms in English that could translate. But you'll see there's a couple of different ways to look at Ivan, some favorable, some very unfavorable. Um, So... 
Ivan the Terrible is not simply known for his continuation of the expansion of Russia's territory, which he does do, but he's also known for his relentless pursuit of diminishing the power of Russia's nobles, who we're going to refer to as the boyars. Ivan, as we said, does continue to push Russia's boundaries as he pushes the Mongols deeper and deeper into Central Asia, and his armies are moving in from the, or from the west through the east. He would even secure territory along the northern parts of the Caspian Sea. Now, what he's going to do to secure a presence there is he's going to have peasants selected to relocate themselves to these lands, and these peasants become known as the Cossacks. I like the analogy that your book uses for the Cossacks, referring to them as essentially the cowboys of the Russian steppes, because that's kind of what they are. These adventurers are known for their fighting ability, and they would help to secure Russia's territory on its eastern fringe. Um, Commercially speaking, Ivan's able to establish trade relations with merchants in the West, because we're talking the 16th century now, so trade is really expanding in Western Europe. England is going to establish a joint stock company in Russia called the Muscovy Company. So they're going to give English exclusive trading rights to this Muscovy Company. The Dutch and French will have a merchant presence in Russia as well, but it's going to be that Muscovy Company that is going to kind of be predominant. Um, So politically, in terms of Russia's internal affairs, What you need to understand about Ivan is that he inherits the throne from his father, Vasily, at age three. And what followed then, because he's so young, is going to be a lot of infighting and backstabbing for a power grab on behalf of the boyars. Uh, People of significant importance to Ivan's life are going to die around him. Uh, His mother being one of them, potentially from poisoning And boyars are going to really try to move in and take power from Ivan. Um, As Ivan gets older, he's going to realize what's going on. I guess in a way he always realizes what's going on, but he's going to be able to take action when he gets older. He's going to take one noble uh, known as Shwiski. He's going to have him arrested. He's going to have him strangled. And he is going to have him thrown to the dogs. Um and basically torn to pieces. Ivan was known uh, to have a reputation when he was younger for a a pretty cruel streak. Um, The the legend has it, and I can't confirm this as historical truth, but I've heard other historians talking about it, that he would throw live animals out of church towers when he was a little boy. And this, this cruel streak that he had really manifests itself when he goes to punish some of his enemies. What he is going to do, in fact, though, I must emphasize this to you, is he's going to actually proclaim himself as the first Tsar of Russia. Technically, Ivan the Great is not a Tsar of Russia. It's going to be Ivan the Terrible who starts with that. And by calling himself Tsar, which if you think about it, one of the ways it's spelled is C-Z-A-R, it looks kind of like you've just taken the word Caesar and compressed it, which is exactly what I want you to think about, because what that means is he's linking his, his reign back to a Roman past, back to a Byzantine and a Roman past, just like we talked about with Ivan the Great establishing a third Rome. So Ivan the Terrible is going to put his power on level with not only the rulers of the past, but also with the absolute rulers of his own time. So now as Tsar, Ivan's going to make it his goal to weaken the authority of the boyars. 
he had limited their rights in provincial governing, and he reserves the right to appoint military leadership on elements other than family lineage. However, when his wife, Anastasia, dies in 1560, this is when Ivan really takes a turn towards the terrible side. Ivan has in his mind a belief that she's killed by a conspiracy that was orchestrated by the boyars. And Ivan had experienced some military defeats in the ensuing years, and he's facing an intense wave of criticism from the boyars and other Russian citizens. So basically, like a kid who's losing a video game, he he rage quits, pretty much. He abandons his post as czar. He says, you don't like what I'm doing? Fine, I'm done. And a lot of Russians fear the instability that could follow potentially from Ivan just vacating his throne. So they basically ask him to return. And he is going to return. And basically what he, he asks in upon his return is that he can kind of rule as he deems fit. And he's granted that ability. So he is going to round up any boyar suspected of treason and have many arrested and executed. Um, he, he, at the same time as this is happening, he's increasingly facing these military setbacks and defeats. And in the midst of debating with his son in 15 over 81 over what type of military action to be taken next, he flies off the handle into a blind rage and ends up clubbing his son and his only successor to death. And Ivan is never going to recover from this tragedy, and he's going to end up dying three years later. So the legacy that Ivan would have that would define him would be the absolute power that is going to be bestowed upon future czars and taking that to a fearful degree as he did and the expansion of Russia's empire, which he also to, to a certain extent succeeded with. Now, without an immediate successor, Russia is going to devolve into what is called the time of troubles and what's eventually going to emerge or who is eventually going to emerge is the Romanov family. They will come to rule as not only the czars of Russia in the immediate future, in the 16th and 17th centuries, but they are going to be the family that the czars of Russia will come from for the rest of its imperial history until it collapses during the Russian Revolution in 1917. So the next czar that I wanted to talk about with you guys is Peter the Great. So we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit here to these czars that make a massive impact on Russian history. And what we're going to see with Peter the Great is some of that autocratic or absolutist style of rule that we've seen with Ivan the Terrible. But what he's committed to doing is pushing Russia's efforts to westernize to a greater level than any of his predecessors. Peter ruled from 1682 to 1725. So if we consider the global context during which he ruled, what we're talking about, what we're thinking about is expanding colonial outposts, increasing global trade. Uh, you see the rise or the continuation of these lavish absolutist monarchies throughout much of Western Europe. And of course, we see the scientific and intellectual developments as the scientific revolution really starts to touch a lot of different aspects of European life. And Peter the Great wants to get in on those developments in Western Europe. So what he's going to do is kind of start out with a grand tour, two grand tours across the European continent. And these trips to Western Europe are driven by, above all else, his original interest in improving Russia's navy. And he himself participates in this journey, and he picks up on a lot more beyond improving his navy, which he will do. 
Uh, Peter returns to Russia, impressed not only by the technological advancements he's learned about, but also what he deems to be a, a cultural superiority or a degree of cultural sophistication that Russia just doesn't have. He's going to order, I love this, he's going to order the Russian nobility, maybe I shouldn't love this, he is going to order the Russian nobility to shave off their long beards. Occasionally, again, as legend has it, which I've heard historians say before, ripping the facial hair of some of the nobility off with his bare hands if they resisted his decree. Um, he also orders the Russians to adopt the Julian calendar, uh, abandoning a calendar that they had used for a long time prior. So he's trying to reform Russia, not only in a technological sense, but also in a cultural sense. Um, and, and, and with modernizing his, his army and navy, he's able to achieve a goal that had been desired by czars, stretching all the way back to Ivan the Terrible, which was to secure land on the coast of the Baltic Sea. And why they want that is because if you think about where the Baltic is, we're talking right near Scandinavia, and the Baltic is going to connect you to not only Northern Europe, but eventually to Western Europe. And this is a major development. This is where the, the, the city of St. Petersburg will be built. This is known as Peter's Window to the West. But you have to keep in mind that this success is checked a bit by the Russian defeat at the hands of the Ottomans in a city called Azov. And Azov is actually at that time the only port that the Russians held on the Black Sea. So although Russia does get St. Petersburg, which gets them access to the Baltic, uh, there's, there's also that setback in the Black Sea that they had lost out on at the hands of the Ottomans. In other terms, um, Peter is also going to reform the bureaucracy and the military. Promotion is now going to be based once again. Uh, we saw Ivan do this to a certain extent, Ivan the Terrible that was, to base promotion upon merit rather than family lineage. Russia is going to be able to expand its educational opportunities um, because science is going to be given a greater priority at this time. And we're going to see the foundations during Peter's time laid for what would be a future Academy of Sciences in Russia. Um, in, in a religious sense, Peter consolidates his control over the Orthodox Church by eliminating the position of patriarch, and he replaces it with basically oversight that is formed at his direction. And finally, the city of St. Petersburg is going to be developed and constructed to resemble some of the great cities of Western Europe. But that process was achieved, or I should say that city's construction was achieved on the backs of Russian prisoners, military conscripts, and peasantry. And St. Petersburg's nickname is the city that was built on bones. Uh, these folks were forced to dig with their hands at times, and they carried dirt in the front of their shirts to move it around from place to place where it needed to go. Um, they're, they're believed to have been buried in some of the foundations of the city. And it's just this, this brutal thing. And, and you have to keep in mind, too, is that the, the nobility are uprooted from Moscow, their, their traditional place of power, and they're forced to resettle in St. Petersburg. Um, so there is this forceful streak in Peter that we've seen in lots of different places, but there is this sense of grandeur that St. Petersburg is able to achieve that isn't quite replicated on the same level in Moscow. Um, he builds his palace there, known as Peterhof, and he designs to replicate it in, in certain ways that are similar to Louis' palace of Versailles that we had talked about in the previous chapter. And we have to keep in mind through all of this 
that many of Peter's efforts to westernize are really resented um, by several different classes in Russia. Peasants feel disconnected to their aristocratic elites, some of them, as your book mentions, that can't even speak Russian. But then there's also nobles in, in Russia who feel like they're losing out on a culture that they believe to be superior to that of Western Europe. So Russians tend to look back on Peter um, very, very favorably today, but there was definitely in, in his moment in time a, a mixed perception of his reign. So finally, we turn to our last czar, who's going to be Catherine the Great, who takes power after the death of her husband, Tsar Peter III, not the same person as Peter the Great. Um, prior to Peter's death, that is, again, Peter III's death, many soldiers had sworn allegiance to Catherine. And there is some speculation as to whether or not Catherine actually helped hatch a plot to have her husband, who was known to struggle with mental disabilities, assassinated. But when Catherine does take charge, she is going to continue Peter the Great's efforts to bring Russia into a more westernized era. She's going to be known for her correspondence with some of France's, France's greatest Enlightenment thinkers, uh, like Voltaire and Denis Diderot. One we've mentioned in the last chapter, that's Diderot. Voltaire we've not yet discussed. No big deal. Um, she makes plans to reform legal codes, and she speaks broadly of her love for liberty and freedoms, yada, yada, yada. I'm panning that off because she doesn't really change anything in terms of freedom and liberty in Russian society, but she likes to talk about it, so I guess that's cool. Um, she's a patron of the arts. She invests in Russian architecture as well. In fact, she's responsible for the construction of Russia's famous Hermitage Art Museum, but like I said, she doesn't take much real action to enact government reform in favor of the common Russian citizen. Instead, she enhances the power of the nobility to help clamp down on local control. Um, also, when the French Revolution broke out in 1789, she makes sure she shuts the doors of Russia to any type of Western intellectual influence because, of course, that poses a threat to her own power. And so, as I kind of suggested there, her... her her relationship with the nobility, that's super essential to keeping Russian society stable for Catherine to enjoy a successful reign. Uh, she's going to grant positions in the government and the military to the nobility. Noble landlords are going to be given the right to demand labor of their peasantry. They're going to be the ones responsible for handling justice, and they're the ones who can levy taxes at their own discretion. And so what this is going to turn into eventually is going to be a peasant uprising led by a man named Emilian Pugachev. And this guy Pugachev actually claims to be Catherine's supposedly dead husband, Peter III. Um, but he's going to lead this rebellion out in the Russian countryside. And what Pugachev is going to call for is an end to serfdom and freedom of religion. And basically, he's going to call on the nobility in the Russian countryside to be attacked, and they will be attacked. But this rebellion is going to be put down. Pugachev is going to be executed and cut up into little pieces. And Catherine's power is going to remain largely unthreatened. Um, a part of her larger legacy, though, in terms of foreign relations, she is very successful at helping to expand Russia's borders. She defeated the Ottoman Empire on the Crimean Peninsula, uh, kind of an area that's pretty contested between Russia and Ukraine today. And what that's significant for is it helps establish a Black Sea presence again that can help open Russia up to potential access to the Mediterranean. 
Um, her empire is also going to push eastward even further into Siberia. She's even going to claim Alaska as part of Russia's holdings. Um, out into the west, or to, to the west from Russia, um, some diplomatic maneuverings are going to help Russia to partition or separate Poland and eliminate it as an independent nation with Russia taking much of the territory. So Catherine the Great's reign, um, maybe not enacting a lot of freedoms for her people, but certainly expanding Russia's reputation on the international stage. So for the zooming in feature, I wanted to briefly chat with you guys what I think is probably one of the most fascinating things in all of this, although there's a lot that we could go with. But I wanted to talk about Peter the Great's tours of Western Europe that took place in 1697 and 98 and 1716-17. Um, he wanted to travel anonymously on these trips, kind of just wanted to be ordinary Joe Blow Russian citizen. But you've got to understand that he's traveling with an entourage of like 250 people and Peter's six feet, eight inches tall. And like everyone in Europe knows this. So they see this massive dude with a thick Russian accent. He's, he's not hiding. It's just not going to happen. Um, he's, he's basically a giant of Western Europe, especially for the 17th century. But anyway, on this trip, Peter goes all over the place. He visits the Netherlands, uh, modern-day Denmark. He's in Saxony, Prussia, Austria, England, France. He even makes it to Versailles in 1717. And what he's doing is he's almost in certain ways like serving as an apprentice, learning personally how to build ships. Um, he's doing dentist, dentistry work. He's, he's doing barbering services. Um, but what he's also doing there is he's learning about the daily life of Europeans. Uh, when he goes to England, he's learning about how cities are being planned in Oxford and Manchester. And so he's he's taking all these things. And I mentioned some of the things he does when he comes back to Russia. But I wanted to talk about some of the weirder things that he does when he comes back to Russia, aside from just the whole facial hair thing. Um, one of the things he does when he returns back to Russia is that he opens up a museum that is called the Kunstkamera. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this museum displays all sorts of medical and human oddities. And it's still open to this day. Um, there's a museum in Philadelphia called the Muter Museum, uh, which is kind of similar to this. But it's, it's not meant to be a place, at least according to Peter, where people just go and kind of like gawk at things. He believes this could be somewhere where people really learn and really educate themselves. Um, but, but there's things like strange weapons and tools and instruments, but there's also today um, basically like bottled medical, people with medical defects, uh, like two-headed babies and, and things of that nature. But apparently during Peter's time, there were like people living with physical deformities that were on display at the museum and they would kind of be fed and taken care of and paid and all this kind of stuff. And Apparently, there were just living displays there. Um, but yeah, that, that was one thing. And another thing, Peter changed the dress code of the Russians. Um, men were no longer allowed to wear these long robes called kaftans. Um, they're instead now ordered to wear pants. <laughs> and if you were caught wearing these kaftans, um, you could have them cut short so that they would look like a kind of a modern European waistcoat type jacket um, right in the middle of the street. And there were other laws for clothing which could regulate 
footwear and the sleeves of your jacket. Um, you had taxes to pay. So if you chose not to wear clothes like this, that's fine. Come into Moscow. But if you want to enter Moscow, you've got to pay a tax. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is that he's really interested in this popular new thing being used throughout Europe. That's tobacco. And he's basically going to, upon his return to Russia, enforce that smoking tobacco be a habit that is taken up by the Russian nobility. I mean, if that doesn't illustrate the power of, of Russian autocrats and Russian czars, I, I, I don't know what does. Uh, far, to the point that foreign tobacco companies are going to start to move into Russia and start really kind of capitalizing on, on this new business opportunity that's growing there. So Peter the Great, on, on so many levels, a ridiculously fascinating and, and massive and scary and weird person. That's, that's all I can say. So for the explainer in this episode, I, I really think that there's a great section in this chapter that you should pay particular attention to as you as you wrap up the reading. And that section is called Themes in Early Modern Russian History. And I really like this section because you can basically view it as a change in continuity over time essay. And all I want to do really quickly is to just review some of the points, some of the arguments made by your book. Be sure to write these down as I read through them. So that as you go to take notes, you can see how these trends play out while you read. So here's here's a few changes. Change number one, the growing power of the nobility over the serfs. You see an evolution throughout Russian history at this time, especially later on with Peter and with Catherine, especially with the nobility gaining more power over the serfs. And another change, again, in that later era a decreasing quality of life for the serfs of Russia. Some continuities through the period, one continuity throughout from Ivan the Great all the way through, through to Catherine, Russia's economic inferiority to Western Europe. Another continuity, the underdeveloped merchant class in Russia. Okay, and, and note the underdeveloped Russian merchant class, because there will be merchants from foreign countries in Russia, but the Russian merchants themselves, it's an underdeveloped class. Another continuity, a lack of agricultural or manufacturing innovation. And the last one, continuity again, social and economic unrest. And again, my recommendation to you would just be as you read, take notes on these developments and their evolution or, or lack thereof, of course, from Ivan the Great all the way up through Catherine the Great. All right, finally, recommendations for the episode. Uh, there's a documentary series that, especially when I used to do a lot more, an uh, older class, a lot more uh, instruction on Russia in particular. I used to play a documentary series called Russia Land of the Czars and definitely a pretty intense thing to watch cover to cover front to back because it does cover a lot of Russian history. But definitely uh, I'll post some of the relevant clips that I think are out there. They're on YouTube primarily. Um, there's just some really interesting anecdotes. Some of the things that I mentioned, some of the more ridiculous things that I mentioned in this episode 
are, are drawn from Russia, land of the czars. And again, I'm not sure that it's a thing you want to watch front to back, but in case you're like, wow, like I have a terrible sounds really interesting. That might be an episode or, or a clip or two that you want to go back and check out. But otherwise, uh, that's all I wanted to go over today regarding Russian history. I just recommend you kind of notice, I think overall, those changes and those continuities from, from one Russian ruler to the next. And we're going to pick up on a pattern throughout the rest of this course where there will be a lot of continuity in Russian political history. Again, that's all for now, though, folks. So take care, everyone. Thank you.